Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Thank you for standing by. This is the conference operator. Welcome to the CES Energy Solutions for first quarter 2020 conference call. As a reminder, all participants are in listen-only mode and the conference has been recorded. After the presentation, there will be an opportunity to ask questions. To join the question queue, you may press star then one on your telephone keypad. Should you need assistance during the conference call, you may signal an operator by pressing star and zero. I would now like to turn the conference over to Tony Olesino, Chief Financial Officer. Please go ahead. Thank you, Steve, and good morning, everyone, and thank you for attending today's call. I'd like to note that in our commentary today, there will be forward-looking financial information and that our actual results may differ materially from the expected results due to various risk factors and assumptions. These risk factors and assumptions are summarized in our first quarter MD&A and press release, both dated May 14, 2020, and in our annual information form dated March 12, 2020. In addition, certain financial measures that we will refer to today are not recognized under current general accepted accounting policies. And for a description and definition of these, please see our first quarter MDNA. At this time, I'd like to turn the call over to Tom Simons, our president and CEO. Uh, good morning. Thank you, Tony, and thank you to everyone for phoning in to today's call. On today's CES quarterly call, we're going to provide an update on the company's uh, plan to survive COVID and the resulting oil collapse. I will give a succinct operations overview of Q1. We grew our market position in all four major parts of the business in the quarter. So U.S. drilling fluids, U.S. production chemicals, Canadian drilling fluids, Canadian production chemicals. Uh, while we're not going to dwell on Q1 a lot, since the world has changed since then, we would suggest that Q1 results show CES's potential when the world resumes post-COVID life and energy demand increases. Tony's gonna talk about financial results for the quarter, including some write-downs. He'll also provide details and historical context of our counter-cycle working capital recovery, which has now begun. We will outline our strategy and goals during the crisis and downturn. We'll provide uh, our outlook on what the company could look like on the other side of this. So we're gonna talk about how and why we'll survive. We'll talk about what we could look like in a recovery. We'll then take questions and provide a short summary and wrap up the call. So I'll start with a short op ops overview for the quarter. And I'm going to go a little uh, out of cadence and say that in light of the great Keystone Pipeline news, we're going to begin with Canada. Canadian drilling fluids had an excellent quarter. We averaged 84 and a half jobs through the quarter uh, going to 50 in March. So January, February in a normal market for Canada, we were kicking some butt. Our customer mix uh, expanded. Our uh, well types were deep, long reach, hot horizontals. 
It included in the quarter work in Canada for three of the super majors. Our unique expertise utilizing brines, lower cost, better performing oil-based mods, blended with superior execution and service add up to a dominating position in the deep long reach Canadian drilling fluid market. We also are very dominant in the SAG-D market because of technology, history, and strong relationships of trust. In the Canadian chemical market, we continue to make financial and operational gains through the quarter. PureChem, our Canadian production chemical business we started from scratch a decade ago, has been reborn over the last year. We're proud of expansion across the basin in the deep, hot, long-reach horizontals and growth into SAG-D, which we believe will pay the company uh, on the other side of this crash. Our people, our products, our strategic infrastructure of PureChem now have, pardon the pun, tremendous chemistry. Stimworks and Sialco in Canada had great first quarters. I'll remind listeners, Stimworks is a niche stimulation chemical line we operate. We rehab old wells to make them economic versus being an abandonment liability. Sialco is our reaction chemistry business in Vancouver. Mike and his team give CES supply chain strength in Canada, new technology across the platform of the company, and some diversification outside of energy. Clear continues to keep its nose above water as our environmental services business line, and we may get some traction with the two Canadian government programs to abandon old wells. I'll now move into the U.S., where two-thirds of our revenue happened in the quarter. Pretty equal contributions, again, from drilling fluids and production chemicals. Vern and Richard are having a, a good race. AES, our U.S. drilling fluid business line, ran an average of 114 jobs through the quarter. We expanded our customer lists into super majors again in the U.S., and particularly in markets where drilling is trickier, which is part of why we got hired. The better the drilling fluids perform in a tough drilling environment, the easier and more cost-effective overall drilling goes. So we've expanded in the places that are tougher to drill, which makes the work you get more defensible and, and easier to keep long-term. As it became clear in March that a steep drop in activity was about to happen, we expanded liquid mud storage in the Permian to accommodate returns from rigs that we knew were about to be released. Today, AES is pleased to be running 49 drilling fluid jobs in the US. And we've won some new customers during the crash. I can emphasize the importance of having an outlet for the liquid mud inventory that you've built to support the 114 jobs over the first quarter, having 40% of that, being able to recycle and reuse that inventory is very helpful to the business today. Uh, US production chemicals, JCAM Catalyst, Q1 was another steady quarter in or first couple months of the quarter in January and February. But like all of industry, we saw changes start to happen in March. JCAM Catalyst grew treatment points through the quarter and today is pleased to report 
that we're actually responsible for more wells now than before the crash. We've been able to work with customers on price as they manage their vendors and what to shut in in the U.S. versus leaving producing. This will serve us later very well. Stimworks, uh, the niche uh, stimulation business, continues with this expansion in the U.S. And I'm pleased to report contributed positive financially through the quarter while barely in its infancy for growth in that huge market. So I'll move on to the important part of the call. How, how are we going to get through this and what will we look like on the other side? We've made significant cost reductions in the business to the tune of 70 or $80 million annualized for competitive reasons and out of respect to the good people and the families that we've either had to release or furlough uh, or go to job sharing or cost or pay reductions, we're not going to provide headcount numbers and we're not giving that intel to competition. Uh, but we want to assure listeners that we're going to do everything that's possible to get the business through this financially while retaining the ability to do more true levels of work once the world goes back to consuming energy. Today, we have enough business going in Canada and the U.S. not to be swimming in inventory. We're growing our customer base through the crash. I'll reemphasize, we have more wells we are responsible for today in the U.S. than before the crash. We've been able to offer concessions and service and technical solutions that the competition can't offer and have won work when all the operators are looking to spend little or no money. We're gonna retain our people. We're gonna maintain our assets. We're gonna maintain our capabilities to grow in a recovery. During the crisis, our objectives are to pay out our line with our working capital harvest, to build a cash war chest, to watch for obvious indicators of a recovery, which unlike other energy crashes, we're actually gonna know when it's gonna get better because we believe it gets better months after society resumes using energy. We obviously are aware that there's gonna be an overhang of oil supply for the uh, world to work off, but there will be an indicator unlike the previous crashes that this management team has got this company through. Uh, we're gonna be very mindful with the war chest that we're gonna build uh, through working capital harvest. And we're gonna, as management and a board, watch for the best way to create long-term value for shareholders. So that could include deploying that money to inventory next year in a recovery. It could include buying underpriced bonds. It could include buying shares, but today cash is king. We'll pay down, we'll pay out the line, we'll build cash and we'll sustain the business and service the bond. Uh, we think on the other side of this, we can be the preeminent mud company or drilling fluids company in North America. In Canada, we are by far number one at 30 to 40% of the market with competition falling away through this crash. In the US, we're number two 
and we believe based on the infrastructure, new business we want, technology we can offer that competition doesn't have, the balance sheet of the business, that we're gonna go to number one on the other side of this thing. Chemicals, we have the capability to thrive in a new North American production market. And I think this is a nuance that is important for people to note. There's lots of speculation of what will stay shut in and what will be brought back on by our customers and whether those reservoirs will be impaired, whether the physical equipment that pumps the pipe in the hole will be damaged from corrosion, from scale deposition, how that will affect ultimate recovery and when these wells come on. But what history has shown and anecdotally what we're hearing from customers is the likely how this unfolds to some degree is that most of the shut-ins are verticals and the ones that stay shut in forever, they will be the verticals. Those are the wells that the chemical companies use treater trucks to sustain with chemistry. Those trucks are expensive. Uh, our CapEx annually, most of it goes to rolling stock or those trucks. We need to get them on the road to treat these verticals that actually aren't that economic for the chemical company. But what is economic is the horizontal well beside it that has continuous injection of chemicals uh, that happen with equipment at the wellhead. The chemical company's role is to drop the product monitor the performance downhole, monitor uh, water conditions, metal conditions in the hole uh, and production conditions. Those horizontal wells in our estimation are the ones that will either be left on or come back in recovery versus the verticals. So for the entire chemical industry, we could be looking at a scenario in a couple years where more of your work is continuous injection into big horizontals and less of it is old vertical wells that are high in capital needs. So that nuance is important for us to know about, to plan for, to capitalize on, um, and then benefit our shareholders in time. We think in a normalized market, CES can resume generating free cash flow. We think between now and then we'll have reduced debt and we'll be looking for ways to reduce the share count and other ways to enrich our shareholders. I'll now turn it over to Tony for a financial update. Uh, then we'll take some questions and I'll give a quick summary. Thanks a lot, Tom. Uh, as Tom mentioned, our Q1 results demonstrated the company's true potential in normal markets. CS illustrated its ability to capitalize on existing infrastructure and grow market share in key end markets, improve adjusted EBITDA margins, and generate significant free cash flow. Although our strong January and February results were negatively impacted by COVID-19 related developments in March, we were still able to generate near record financial results. During the quarter, CS generated revenue of 349 million and adjusted EBITDA of 51.1 million, representing a 14.6% margin compared to 12.6% last quarter and an average of 13.1% during 2019. Revenue generated in the US was 228 million, representing 65% of total revenue for the company. 
we experienced record drilling fluids market share in the quarter at 15%, up from 13% in Q4. Despite deteriorating drilling counts, uh, especially experienced uh, towards the end of the quarter. Production chemical activities also increased over a prior year, primarily in the Permian and Rocky Mountain regions. Canadian revenue of 121 million, or 35% of total revenue for the quarter, represented an increase of 12% year over year. This increase was primarily related to the strong drilling activity in the first two months of the year and continued operational and financial strength in PureChem's production chemicals business. As Tom mentioned, in light of the deteriorating industry conditions and low price environment realized toward the end of the quarter, we recorded the following non-recurring items. An $11.1 million non-cash write-down of certain petroleum-based inventory products to net realizable value, driven by the significant decline in the price of oil, resulting in an associated increase to cost of sales. A $1.1 million increase to bad debt allowances, driven by increased uncertainty around some collections, and a $0.7 million restructuring charge for the right-sizing initiatives that were executed in March. Further, in the quarter, we recorded a goodwill impairment charge of $249 million in our two cash-generating units as our IFRS impairment analysis, which was based on significantly severely depressed market conditions, indicated that the recoverable amount of the net assets for these CGUs did not exceed their respective carrying values. In Q1 2020, CapEx spend was $12.4 million, or 3.5% of revenue. With infrastructure build-out largely complete, and given the current environment, we have suspended non-essential CapEx and reduced our 2020 CapEx estimate from $50 million to up to $30 million, comprised of approximately $20 million for maintenance CapEx and $10 million for expansionary projects that are either considered essential or were previously committed to. CS exited the first quarter with total debt of $426.6 million, slight increase from December 31st, primarily as a result of working capital build to support higher drilling activity levels in the quarter and a strong US dollar. Total debt to adjusted EBITDA at the end of March was 2.4 times, consistent with levels seen at year end. CS's focus on financial attributes such as balance sheet management, working capital optimization, and prudent capital allocation have resulted in a strong financial position as we withstand current industry conditions with an aim to preserve our industry-leading position to benefit from an eventual stabilization and improvement in end markets. Our balance sheet has benefited from prudent structuring and maturity schedules of our credit facility and our senior notes. Total debt at the end of Q1 2020 was primarily comprised of the draw on our senior facility and the outstanding principal on our senior notes. As at March 31st, 2020, we had a net draw of $92.9 million on our senior facility, which does not mature until September, 2022. And currently, that net draw is closer to $75 million as the working capital harvest has already begun at the company. 
the maximum draw in our senior facility is approximately $250 million Canadian equivalent, providing us with approximately $165 million in availability today. As at March 31st, 2020, we had $291 million in senior notes outstanding at a six and three eighths coupon, which do not mature until October, 2024. From a covenant perspective, while our senior notes are covenant light, we are subject to two financial covenants on our senior facility. Our senior debt to EBITDAC maximum covenant is 2.5 times for which we are currently below 0.8 times. And as mentioned and experienced before, we expect the draw on that senior facility to decline as working capital harvest continues. Our interest coverage minimum covenant is 2.5 times for which we were at 6.5 times at March 31st, 2020. Furthermore, our existing senior facility already provides us with an optional step down to 1.5 times if we need it for up to three consecutive quarters, subject to an asset coverage test. In summary, we feel very confident in our current strong financial position, our ample liquidity and our covenant considerations. Our focus on company-wide working capital optimization resulted in additional free cash flow surplus during 2019, despite flat revenue, as, and we expect our working capital discipline, counter-cyclical balance sheet, and declining activity levels to result in significant working capital harvest in 2020. For reference, during the last downturn uh, from 2015 to 2016, we experienced a significant working capital recovery as activity levels fell and our counter-cyclical balance sheet significantly minimized liquidity concerns that were facing most of the oil and gas industry at the time. From Q4 2014 to Q2 2016, CS saw a reduction in working capital surplus of $152.7 million, which allowed us to fully repay our outstanding senior facility and grow cash balances to over $110 million as at June 30th, 2016. In 2020, we expect to harvest a significant amount of working capital once again, and that's already begun, which we believe will allow us to potentially pay down our line and reduce total leverage. We continually monitor our capital allocation options in the context of market conditions outlook and the levels of our surplus free cash flow generation. In Q1 2020, we made a difficult yet calculated decision to reduce our dividend. And as industry conditions continued to worsen, we announced that our monthly dividend was suspended on April 16, 2020. This decision will conserve approximately $60 million in cash on an annualized basis. In Q2, sorry, in Q1 2020, we also spent $4.8 million under our NCIB program and repurchased 2.3 million shares at an average cost of $2.07 per share. That repurchase representing approximately 1% of our shares outstanding. We will continue to assess share buybacks and bond repurchases in the context of our assessment of market conditions and certainty around our surplus free cash flow levels. We expect both repurchase programs to be muted until we have a better grasp of stability and recovery of our end markets. 
we remain responsibly cautious on our outlook for 2020 and beyond in this low price environment. However, we came into this downturn from a position of strength with an excellent first quarter and a strong balance sheet. In addition to the dividend and NCIB suspension, we've proactively implemented right-sizing measures, including reductions to executive and board of directors compensation levels, reductions in personnel and overhead costs, and elimination of non-essential capex. Our goal through this downturn from a financial perspective is to preserve balance sheet, our very strong balance sheet, and to optimize our industry-leading operations and employee base to weather the downturn and maximize our potential for when industry conditions improve. We remain committed to the safety of our employees, support of our customers, defense of our strong financial position and preservation of shareholder value. Operator, at this time, I'd like to turn the call over to you uh, to uh, allow us to take any questions. We will now begin the question and answer session. To join the question queue, you may press star then one on your talkphone keypad. You will hear a tone acknowledging your request. If you're using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing any keys. To withdraw your question, please press star then two. We will pause for a moment as callers join the queue. The first question comes from Aaron McNeil with CD Security. Please go ahead. Hey, morning, guys. Hope you're all doing well. Um, based on the prepared remarks, it seems like one of the themes of the quarter was you picked up new customers across different business lines. I think you called out Canadian Drilling Fluids and JKM Catalyst specifically. You also had some pretty strong margins, so it doesn't seem like you got there on price. But you also mentioned that you're working with your customers to keep some of that work. So couple questions on that. First, I guess, did some of the pricing concessions that you made, is that more of a Q2 impact? And can you give us a sense of magnitude? And then second, have you been successful in retaining some of the new customers you picked up in Q1 as activities fallen away and well starting to be shut in? Uh, so Tony and I aren't in the same physical place. So as we answer the questions, we might uh, talk over a little to start, guys. Um, not unlike 15, 16, Aaron, five, 10% discounts on certain types of work and product. They might be more than that. Um, the customers and the vendors are pretty rehearsed on how fast this can change. As everyone on this call knows, it is social convention in the oil field to renegotiate price every time oil drops and then the service companies fight to get it back in the recovery. Um, I can report that we've added customers since the crash began and some of the new customers that include both drilling fluids and production chemicals that we have retained those and actually increased our position, uh, particularly with one of them, uh, as things have gone down there. Um, we have 49 jobs running in the States today and seven in Canada for drilling. We can squeak by at that and probably not print red ink and importantly, not be swimming in inventory of liquid mud. We'll shrink 
dry goods and all the consumables as we ought to. And that's why the working capital harvest happens as everyone understands. Um, but yeah, we've done, we've been able to grow the business in terms of customer lists. And while a lot of the new work is shut in, we've replaced competition uh, in the production business in the U.S. because we moved quicker, we could give them ideas that were different. And because of being a basic manufacturer, we have a little more room on the price side than all the blenders, which is what all the mom and pops are, private equity guys. So really, it's Baker, Nelco, and us that can get serious with the customer. It allows you to retain the relationship and all the hard work you did in the past. And then when they go back to making money, the suppliers will go back to making money. That's how I would summarize all of this. The vendors can't make much and hopefully not lose too much when the, all the customers are losing. And when the worm turns, we need to go with them. On, uh, on PureCam specifically, I suspect that some of the strong margins on a consolidated basis this quarter were a function of improvements there. So I guess I'm wondering if you take it balance all the headwinds coming your way in that business versus all the operations improvements that you've made. How should we think about margins for that business in Q1 and then going forward? Well, in Q1, they were no longer a drag on the rest of the business which is a huge part of why overall margins have been creeping up. Um, the other three parts of the business had to carry it. And that's no longer the case. And what that's led to, Aaron, is us being able to be a little more competitive on price in the other three parts, which has led to growth in market share at acceptable returns, while PureChem has kind of turned itself around. And we had a lot of stuff shut in in Canada today um, for Pure Chem, but we've been awarded a lot of new business that as the industry kind of turns things back on, it's going to be pretty good. So we have to retain our, we have to retain our people and retain these relationships of trust that award this work for everyone to benefit in a recovery. Do you think that given you know the decrease in activity, do you think you're, that pure chem would, would be a drag going forward on margins, or would it be accretive to margins in the near term as, as activity on the drilling side decreases? I think it's too early to be really specific, but uh, each of the markets is a little different. The Rockies is really shut in. Some people in the Permian are more shut in than others. I think it depends what pipeline they go to, what their own capital structure and balance sheet look like. And it's the same in Canada. Um, we don't expect PureChem to be a drag on the business, I think is the answer, Aaron. And personally, I'm, for the first time in a long time, really happy with a politician in Canada. I think the timing of Keystone is a home run for the country and for the Canadian oil field. It is a path to growth for the basin that didn't exist before. And we think money will come back into the basin because of that, despite Ottawa. 
And so that gives us, that emboldens me for pure chem a lot. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to run drilling fluids on wells that drill for gas and condensate. We're going to have growth in the oil sands in the future. We're going to benefit when they drill those wells. We're going to have benefited from the deep work that use, uses the condi uh, to get the oil sands south. And we're going to treat a bunch of that oil sands production. So we like, we like what things look like in a couple of years for Canada. Aaron, just to provide a little bit more color on, uh, on one aspect of your question, was, which was related to the relative uh, margin uh, expectations of that business perhaps versus the rest of the company. It, as Tom mentioned, it absolutely no longer is a drag. Uh, there's some quarters where it, it's, it's close to being a leader in terms of margins. But uh, Q2 is going to be really, really tough uh, for the reasons that Tom mentioned. Our partners have worked very quickly uh, to, uh, to do those things that we highlighted to, uh, to uh, adjust cost structure. And uh, Q2 will be felt by everybody. However, uh, the two production chemicals businesses, uh, we believe will start to outperform the drilling fluids businesses as we get into Q3 and Q4, as these, uh, these shut-in uh, levels should start to subside. And uh, that all assumes that the, uh, the rig counts uh, stay at depressed levels, because as soon as those start coming up, so too will the, uh, the contributions and the margins in the drilling fluids businesses. But in the near term, based on the limited visibility that we have, uh, I think it's right to, uh, to ascertain that the margins uh, will, uh, will be more leaders in the, uh, in the production chemicals businesses, both in uh, Canada and the US, especially as we get through Q2 into Q3 and Q4. Understood. Uh, last question for me. On a purely hypothetical or even anecdotal basis, is there anything missing in the portfolio that you might have your eye on from an M&A perspective? Obviously, Catalyst in 2016 turned out to be a pretty big strategic win for CES. Is there anything strategic like that out there? I'm pausing on the answer, Aaron. There's private equity, production chemical companies. There's companies that supply into refining and pipelines. I'm not sure that's going to be a big focus of the business. Um, pretty hard to do M&A with a dollar stock. And we think we can create massive value for ourselves, I think, by doing things organically. And either buying 75 cent bonds or low price shares instead. But we're always looking and open to things. We know where we might like to be and that would have a bigger presence in treating pipelines. The frack market is very beat up. That's a small focus for us. Um, and refining is paper thin margins. Diversification out of energy one day, but Right now, our focus is batten down the hatches, survive, and win on the other side. Understood. Thanks, guys. I'll uh, turn it over. Thanks, Aaron. The next question comes from Greg Coleman with National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Hey, guys. How are you? Good, Greg. 
Good morning. I uh, just wanted to start by talking about the market share a bit. I know uh, Aaron was touching on it a little bit too in your wins there. You know, the, the, the growth strategy in Q1 was going very, very well. I know it's a fluid market and an ever-changing situation, but we, should we be thinking um, 50% market share in Canada and 20% in the U.S. Is, is the realm of possibility as we start looking out into 2021? Um, or do you think this is sort of a temporary dislocation that has to do with the current situation and will sort of be reverting back to the historic norms as, as, the, as the cycle recovers into the following year? Uh, well, I hope the recovery's next year, Greg. Um, I'll maybe jump to my summary point. In a recovery, we aspire to be the number one drilling fluid company in North America. We already are in Canada. We're two in the U.S. We think we're going to one. We think that because of who we're working for, where we have infrastructure, the technology that we know we have that others aren't replicating or can't and that will continue to bring new solutions to new problems faster than them. And we aspire to expand our position as the number three production chemical company for North American production, which I'll emphasize we think will be from horizontal wells or floods and recoveries that are chemical intensive. So we like the look of the recovery do we like the crash to create that? Not at all. But yeah, I don't think 20% is out of range at all in the U.S. We kind of have to have that to be number one in North America. And we might do better than that. We have the physical infrastructure and the horses to do that. Got it. And, uh, and my second question has to do with uh, it's sort of a double-barreled question regarding balance sheet and capital uh, capital allocation and whatnot. So, so the first part of it is, and, and Tom, I think you really addressed this in the opening comments, but I just want to hammer it home. Is it fair to assume that we're, we're going to see the sole use of capital right now as reduction in the bank line and then building a cash balance as opposed to, you know, paying off the, or trying to pay down the, the, the bonds, uh, which have a higher interest rate and also, you know, are trading at a discount because to your point, cash is king. That's sort of point number one. And then the second part of it is expectations on the senior line. Do you believe that the peak draw on the senior line is, is behind us, you know, probably around that Q1 um, calendar Q1 end period, and that the, the balance is likely to only fall from the current 75 million level based on your understanding and expectations for working capital harvest and your CapEx, your CapEx spend? Greg, we're going to let Tony take this. I He's actually not even allowing me to have access to the bank account these days. Uh, we're being very conservative, and he's in charge. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Uh, Tom uh, Greg, bang on. Tom outlined uh, the uh, the high level philosophy. So basically, you are right in that in what you said and, and what Tom laid out at the beginning. Cash is king, and we are going to use that that working capital harvest to pay down that line. And, uh, and we will come up for air as, uh, as we need to, to make decisions on capital allocation. Uh, what I would emphasize though is, uh, is, uh, is your comment about uh, whether or not the highest draw is behind us. So we were at, uh, we we're at 93 million at the end of uh, Q4 and uh, we're currently at 75 million. The thing of note is, uh, is the fact that we went up to 9,500 
110 during the period between that reporting and that $75 million draw that you saw in our press release and documents yesterday. So that, uh, that draw has already started to crest and uh, the team, finance team, divisional controllers, uh, divisional presidents and Tom, uh, we are all laser focused on bringing down that AR, controlling that inventory, and we're already starting to see an acceleration of the working capital harvest. So uh, we believe that that draw, uh, that significant or more significant draw level is absolutely behind us. And we're in the middle of uh, harvesting that working capital, uh, but we're not taking anything for granted. We continue to optimize collections, look at, uh, at risk ratings of existing or and potential customers and, uh, and accelerate that, that harvest because we want to be in a position, not necessarily in six months, but probably in four to eight weeks to come up for air, take a look at what we have in the piggy bank or what we believe is coming and then act as we think is prudent. Got it. That makes sense. Tony, and then one more question, uh, last one, just shifting gears to, uh, well, I guess you're staying on working capital here for a second, but not the, the harvest, but rather the write down. There's a little over $11 million written down in the quarter, um, just because I'm not as intimately familiar with, with inventory um, accounting and write downs. Is that something which is largely contained to the quarter, or is that something which will, will be occurring over the duration of, of, the, uh, of the sort of challenged period here? Yeah, that's uh, a good question, and uh, I think you picked up in some of your comments uh, in, in your work that, uh, that it was petroleum-based commodity price that, uh, or commodities that, uh, that drove that, that write-down. So we sat there at the end of the quarter, took a look at what happened to WTI, looked at the petroleum-based uh, inventory that we had, which at that time was about 20 to $25 million worth of our inventory, and uh, ended up with that 11.1 million non-cash write down to that inventory. Uh, I, I think almost all of that type of write down is behind us. There could be a little bit more like that, but will not be anywhere near that number. Got it. That's it for me. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, Greg. The next question comes from Keith McKay with RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Thanks for taking my question and hope everybody's doing well. Um, I just wanted to ask first off, uh, just we think back to you know, 2016 for a moment and the revenue levels that you achieved during those times. Um, if that were to reoccur over the next year to year and a half, um, would you expect to see similar margins uh, or or uh, different margins, and if so, what would be the main contributing factors to uh, to a differential from from those results in 2016? I think uh, I'll start off with this one, Tom. I I think uh, Keith, it's really difficult to compare the two, and uh, that's simply because the the business has changed and evolved. Uh, number one, we picked up Catalyst. I think it was in August August September of 2016, so it didn't. Uh, we didn't realize the the full potential or the full contribution of that business, i.e., production chemical related, um, until uh, until into the following year. 
And as I mentioned earlier, uh, it's it's uh, it's something that we've avoided doing in terms of using that exact playbook from that previous downturn because it's it's very different. Uh, if you look at at the, uh, the the twin black swans that happened this time with the oil price war uh, that I believe has subsided, although that's not being appreciated yet, and the bigger thing, which is the COVID-related collapse in demand, which is the bigger issue. Um, I think the big difference is the fact that uh, we expect drilling fluid uh, margins to stay low for longer until we see the rig activity come back up. The big delta right now is the fact that we never saw the level of shut-ins that we're experiencing right now and believe we're going to experience for the better part of the next four to eight weeks. And, uh, and, and the corollary with that is, and again, to address your specific margin question, we expect the, uh, the production chemicals businesses to pull us out of the low margins that we're going to see in, in Q2. And, uh, and start getting us out more quickly in Q3 to Q4 than uh, what we would have realized across the board in 2016, 17, 2016 in particular. Got it. Thanks for that color, Tony. Um, now, Tom, in your prepared remarks, you did mention you added a bit of storage uh, in Texas for, for liquid mud. And then you, you also mentioned that you can avoid uh, printing red ink at the current 49 levels of of drilling fluid jobs, can you maybe just comment on, you know, your 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 playbook or your strategy for for what to do if things go below those levels, and then how that might affect the uh, affect the business uh, and the margins uh, in that scenario. You bet. Um, and I'll maybe elaborate a little on your last question, Keith. I think listeners should expect every single service company to struggle to turn a profit when their customers are printing headline eye-popping losses and not just from write-downs. Um, so I think when oil creeps back to better numbers, the price concessions will be up for discussion again and you'll get some of it back heat. So it's gonna track the price accrued and there'll be a little bit of a lag because some guys will be turkeys and not honor what they said, but most will. And we'll get some of it back. Um, and, you know, my sort of message to everyone is we believe we can get through this shut-ins period. As Tony said, we think the next four to eight weeks are pretty tough for everyone. But we can get through that financially because of this big quarter in our pocket because 49 jobs in the state does turn a little profit. And if we don't run too many mud plants in the states, if we take the pain of this $11 million write down now on the value of oil-based mud mainly, we can get that stuff back in the ground in the field and not be printing terrible numbers with it or have to get prices that are unattainable so then you lose the work. Um, we can go a little lower than this and make a little or break even. Probably anything under 30 jobs gets pretty tough, but we are not going to blow up our people and our culture and our company for the sake of a month or two. So if we can stay kind of 10 jobs in Canada 
and 35 jobs in the States, and they're in concentrated areas, which is different than 15, 16. We were losing money at 40 jobs in the States in 15, 16, and breaking even at 50, but they were more spread out. Now everything's the Northeast US or the Delaware. And if it stays like that, the break even would be in the 30s. And we're going to carry some important people because we need them later and we don't want to compete with them. And as shut ins come back on, whatever losses we might print for a month or two, we think we get back to breaking even or making a little. And do better as people get busier and particularly as oil goes up and then you can get some pricing back. That's huge. Got it. Okay. Thanks for that. And just finally, uh, maybe a clarification on your U S market share, the current jobs you're running, is it mainly or mainly because your current customers have been running more, or as you say, have you actually won, won enough new customers to, uh, to, to grab additional organic share well our second on our trailing 12-month basis our second biggest drilling fluid customer has zero rigs running today and our market share is up so it isn't just that we got lucky and our people didn't lay their rig this down we've won new work and then we've got more uh, as a percentage of the rig that people are running than we had before the crash Right. Okay. Thank you very much. Appreciate the uh, appreciate the color, and I'll, I'll turn it back now. Thanks, Thanks Keith. The next question comes from Jim Monticello with AltaCorp Capital Inc. Please go ahead. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, just one question for me, Tom. You mentioned your, in your prepared remarks there that you think you know you can substantially increase your market position coming out of this downturn. I'm just curious if you give an overview of I guess the competitive dynamics and if you've seen any change in attitude or change in um, strategy going through this downturn from your major competitors? Yeah, that's a great question. So we're seeing some mom and pops fall away. Never thought it would happen. We've seen uh, Baker and Schlumberger almost entirely exit pursuing drilling fluids land in North America. They just can't move fast enough and be lean enough to make any money and get the right people, um, which really leaves a handful of independents in the U.S. One is public, one is private equity, and then Halliburton. And then in Canada, it leaves secure and some independents. Um, I think there'll be less people vying for the work that's up for grabs after we're going to make it we're seeing questionable pricing coming from one of our competitors we think the people on the ground are giving prices to customers so they can keep their jobs because they keep the work but the work wouldn't make any money so we think there's a disconnection from maybe head office to who's controlling pricing at the customer level there um we don't see Halliburton using their balance sheet uh, in drilling fluids uh, like they did in 1516. So if they just stay still with share and we take it from the independents, the private equities that are hitting financial exhaustion, 
and the mom and pops that are going away and then add that to our expansion into the super majors over the last year, we're kind of willing to stick our neck out and say we're going number one. Gotcha. Uh, um... Tim, I, I should qualify that. How we measure number one isn't just in market share. It's actually in what value are we creating for this business? Uh, are we the top technical company? Are we the top financial company? Are we the top company for culture? Are we the place that young petroleum engineers want to work if they don't go work at an oil company? That's how we define number one. It's not just do we have 300 jobs in Halliburton as 299. We want to get more for what we do. Gotcha. Yeah, that's an important uh, distinction. Um, in terms of Nalco, have you seen any change in uh, the way that they come to market now that you know the combination with Apergy? And do you expect that that's going to have an impact on pricing now that they can come with sort of a more bundled solution for production? Uh, well, I'll start by saying we don't believe the customers want the bundled solution. Schlumberger's had that available for a long time, and they're not a relevant player. So we're not convinced that that combination has sales synergy. Um, same logic as why we stayed out of equipment for mud. My experience being on mud tanks and on location and selling is if you provide the equipment for mud and chemicals and the equipment fails, they don't want to pay for the chemicals. So I think there's more risk than upside. Um, what we are seeing that's different, Tim, is that Baker is being very aggressive on price. We aren't seeing that uh, from Nelco at this point. Uh, I think they want to preserve their margin. They've probably lost whatever contribution they were getting from their frac sales because there are none to get, not because they've done anything wrong. Um, but I listened to Baker do a call a month or two ago, and they were pretty clear that they went through the last crash kind of on autopilot, and that, that was not going to happen this time. And they're acting on that. They're being aggressive on price. Awesome. I appreciate it. I'll turn it back. The next question comes from Ian Gillis with People. Please go ahead. Morning, everyone. Um, there's been some questions around acquisitions throughout the call. Maybe approaching this from a bit of a different angle. Are you seeing the opportunity to maybe add some key people that may deal with customers that you haven't dealt with historically to help expand some of those verticals? Or And is that something you might be interested in? Given, I mean, the strength of the capital position, et cetera, it seems like you should have a fair bit of flexibility to go about and try and execute some of those endeavors. That, Mr. Gillies, is a great way to frame the question. Yeah, we don't want to get private equity off the dime or send anyone to the lake to retire when they sell. We're just going to get the people that can get the work. And so we have to preserve our culture, our platform, our brand, our good standing with our customers. Ideally, I don't want to issue any equity to anyone ever again. Um, so, which your investment banker colleagues won't like to hear, but M&A is low priority, low likelihood, but we can't say never. We have a duty to look at things that could create value, and we always will. Okay, that that's that's useful, and 
I guess the, the other part I guess I'm curious on is we never really talk about international expansion in regards uh, to your business. There's a you've built out North America by and large at this point. At what point do you think about start starting to look outside of the current jurisdictions you're in as another avenue for growth, or is it just something you're not interested in at this point? We were looking before the crash. I was personally involved. Tony was involved. Ken and Baxter and Vern were involved, so it had got to our level. Uh, I even got Baxter to South America on a trip. So we're <laughs> out there kicking tires. He doesn't travel well. He'll be listening to this and laughing. Um, it's on the radar for us, but for the next year or two, unless we literally get a sponsor that says, we really want you to come do this and we'll help it not lose money in the beginning, it's kind of on the shelf for a while, but we know that that's the next leg. We know the next leg isn't equipment. It's to do more of what we already do somewhere else. Got it. Uh, that's, that's helpful. Well, I'm going to call back over. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ian. Thank you. The next question comes from Joseph Sasser with Spectra Energy Research. Please go ahead. Good morning, guys, and thanks for taking the calls. Uh, I've got a couple for Tom and then uh, one for Anthony. Um, Tom, you mentioned it earlier in the, um, in the, uh, in the commentary about uh, the benefits uh, potentially revenue-wise from the Canadian abandonment, uh, you know, abandonment program where the feds are putting up money in all the, you know, the main provinces in the West. Uh, what kind of uh, a business can you see there? Uh, and, and maybe if there's any magnitude uh, to, to that revenue stream, that you see and what specifically would you be bringing to the table for that? Uh, thanks for the question, Joseph. Um, not amounts of money that will move the needle. The Alberta government, interestingly, and I think it's well intended, but it's caused some consternation by the customers. They want the service companies as sort of the general contractor on their billion of abandonments, which means you know, my customer friend at the oil company isn't in charge or in charge, which is not social convention in the oil field at all. Um, there might be several million dollars of work to win there. It might get to 10 if we hit a home run. It's really a way for us to expand careers, reputation, uh, we can do twenty, thirty thousand dollar revenue jobs for our environmental services. Very little kill fluid needed or chemicals to abandon most of these wells. So it's not going to be a lot of revenue for mud. But if it keeps some people at clear employed, it allows them to print a little bit of a positive. Um, if it helps industry. It wins any social license in the country. I'd say that it adds up to a positive. It's better than nothing. What we need is for society to be allowed to go back to functioning so people use oil. And I'm not advocating that I'm an expert on when that should happen, but that's what we need. Now, the Canadian government, with the financing packages, especially for the larger companies, is pushing this environmental uh, you know, improvement uh, 
you know, methane, CO2, and stuff like that. With your strong science groups uh, that you have uh, on the chemical side, is there any way of leveraging that that, that skill set um, for you to come up with uh, items that could be potentially decent sized revenues, but also help the companies meet these uh, ESG goals that will allow them to tap the financing that the federal government is looking at uh, potentially doing? We're sure thinking about those things, Joseph. Um, I'll start by saying we won't need the government's. I mean, we're taking employee assistance money like every responsible business should be trying to access to, but we're not going to need the government's money for liquidity. Uh, however, if we could get loans that end up not needing to be repaid, that's probably a nice thing. So we're going to keep our eye on what they want to spend money on. We're working on the backside with all of our customers constantly on how to recycle water, how to use frac flowback water for the next job instead of fresh water, um, how to reduce corrosion and pipelines so they spring a leak less often, uh, how to run drilling fluids in a way that never touches the ground. Um, that is something amazingly relatively new, say, in the last decade in the U.S., and it's been in place in Canada for 25 years. When I started in the field, we still had pits or sumps that we put water in uh, to flocculate solids out in, and that's long since gone. Um, we handle cleaning up frack ponds for some of the super majors already, so... The environmental lens, there's opportunity, but honestly, I think it's more of a penalty to the industry in Canada than a benefit. We can't make enough to set off what damage they keep doing to the industry, in my opinion. I wish I could say we could, but I mean, we've been working on technology for cleanup of cuttings and tailings in the oil sands for three or four years. We're trying to launch a new mouse trap in this market is pretty tough. Yeah, but the, to, for those companies that are hurting, that's probably going to be something they're going to have to push if they're going to be able to access uh, from the producer side that uh, that capital for you know over a hundred million dollar loan. So it's uh, the pressure is on from the feds and and, and Trudeau's leftist uh, approach, uh, you know, with where he wants the NDP Greens on side rather than the Conservatives. So. Um, you know, there's going to have to be some breakthroughs technologically. I'm just trying to see if, you, if your skill set uh, would be able to help there. Uh, my last question for Tony, um, you took the big write-down on goodwill. Why wouldn't you have just uh, knocked off all of the goodwill and, and just have a you know much cleaner balance sheet from just people perspective looking at it and seeing that on the balance sheet? Yeah, no, fair question. It was, uh, it was a, an objective, formulaic approach. And uh, when we looked at, uh, at our forecast uh, over that period for the goodwill impairment test, and, uh, and we looked at the assumptions that went into driving uh, those relative cash flows and that valuation, uh, it became very apparent that, uh, that 100% of the, uh, the Canadian uh, CGU's uh, goodwill would be impaired, and uh, based on that objective approach, uh, we got to almost all of—not quite, but 75% of uh, of the uh, U.S. Uh, cash generating unit—and we don't expect to have to revisit that. 
or you don't expect to. There's no pr pricing point or value point that might uh, make you address it in future quarters. Yeah, look, if we're talking in another quarter about uh, about WTI going back down to minus 39 uh, or minus 35, we could be having a different conversation, but right now, no. Okay, super. Thanks very much for taking my questions, and stay safe, and I hope all your employees are as well. Thank you, you too. The next question comes from Matthew Weeks with Industrial Alliance Security. Please go ahead. Uh, good morning. I, I think most of my questions have been asked. At, at this point, I, uh, I actually tried to exit the question uh, queue, but was not successful. Uh, but but I'll, I will just ask a clarification question really quick. Um, I'm not sure if you had mentioned it earlier in the call. I know you mentioned it for the U.S. drilling fluids business. But how many um, drilling fluids jobs were being run in, in Canada through the quarter? <laughs> we ran 84 jobs. Uh, on average through Q1, and we're down to seven today. Okay, that's all for me. Thank you. I'll turn it back. Thanks for your patience. This concludes the question and answer session. I would like to turn the conference back over to Tom Simons, President and CEO, for any closing remarks. Well, I'll wrap up by reiterating. Uh, that we believe we can get through this shut-in period financially, that we've got the balance sheet to bleed a little bit so that we don't blow up our company's capabilities on the other side of this. As those shut-ins come back on for our customers, if we get into the red, that'll move us back into the black. As COVID passes and the world consumes the overhang of oil, we look to resume generating substantial free cash flow for our shareholders. We aspire to be the number one drilling fluid company in North America on land. And we aspire to substantially expand our position as the number three production chemical provider to North American land producers. We commit to our employees to retain our unique culture of working managers, having a sense of urgency, solving problems to win work, and then building relationships of trust with that customer. To our customers, we commit to work with you so that both of our businesses survive and our relationships survive. And to our shareholders, we're committed to being prudent, to surviving, to building and hoarding cash, and being very strong financially and operationally as normalcy returns to the world. With that, we'll wrap up the call and say thank you for your time. This concludes today's conference call. You may disconnect your lines. Thank you for participating. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.